Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 987 with Al Lucas. If you ever think your work doesn't matter, look out here. Because if there's one fork or one plate or one glass that hits that table that's dirty before the customer has it, then this slows down. And what's happening here is magical. And you're a part of it. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable this episode is brought to you by restaurant systems pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60 day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the restaurant system pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants fred will teach you recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp this episode is brought to you by ovation creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time but the ways to find out what's actually happening with your guests are terrible that's where ovation comes in ovation gets happy guests to leave you positive reviews and unhappy guests to share what happened and it gives you specific ideas to improve ovation it's frictionless for your guests easy for your managers and powerful for you if you're interested in actionable guest feedback visit ovationup.com unstoppable unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee what are you waiting for that's ovation up.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will try translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest partner at Defined Hospitality, Al Lucas, my man, Al, you're feeling unstoppable today. I feel great. I'm excited to be here. Uh, you, we, we got the the... the the privilege to enjoy your your pizza spot. I'm afraid to say it because I've heard two different people say it differently. Let's see what you got. <laughs> Bit, oh, it's not in front of me. It's Bidia. 
It's, well, the official word is Bedia. Bedia, sorry. <laughs> but it, I, uh, I didn't even know that until six months uh, of working with Joe and uh, someone corrected me and I was like, Joe, why didn't you tell me your name's Bedia? He goes, I gave up a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the people were great. The food was delicious. Um, Eli Culp put us in touch with you and I have a lot of respect for Eli and what they're doing over there at High Street Hospitality. Uh, so if Eli is saying you got to talk to these guys we got to talk to wow. you. So I, I can't wait to dive into your story to talk about how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Well, let's just uh, let's go up high. Jet pilots do not use rear view mirrors. They do not. Why is that? Because they're going forward and they're going <laughs> fast. That's a good point. <laughs> so what, what is that? So what is that? Uh, resonate with you. Why does that resonate with you? Well, I think uh, it, it. I think about that when I'm kind of getting slowed down and thinking about the problems and not the solutions. And you know, you only if you talk about a problem a thousand times, it doesn't mean you have a thousand problems. It just means you chose to th- talk about it a thousand times. And so, getting that airplane, getting that jet, and start flying. Yeah. I mean, this quote, I feel like is coming at such a great time. We literally just came from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, where we connected with Tom Sterner, who's the author of, uh, it's just a thought, um, the, um, mindful, Oh, I'm horrible with details of the, the titles of the books, but his whole thing is mindfulness and uh, how to live intentionally. And that's a big part of it is it, what you said is you, you can't focus on what was the key word you said? Well, you, if you focus on one problem a thousand times, you feel like you have a thousand problems, yes. but you have one problem. And you just get anxiety. You Correct. focus on problems. You, all you do is think about the, the, the pro, like the, trying to overcome those problems, and you just get lost in thought. And But if you focus on solutions, focus on the, the process, and being in the process to, to take one small bite at a time, all that anxiety kind of just goes away, and you get lost in the work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then the get, you know, the get, the the get it started moment is when I also say, if it was easy, anybody would do it. Mm. So this is where you got to dig in, dig in with your team, dig in with your people and, you know, get after these solutions. Um, Awesome stuff. Great way to get this thing started. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Wow. Well, I mean, I'll be as brief as possible about the first 21 years because they were with one company uh, that I literally started as a dishwasher and left as the vice president of the East Coast. And in between, um, it was a company called Chart House Restaurants, and it was started by the precursors of, to the Navy SEALs. It was uh, four gentlemen that were part of UDT-1 and UDT-2, the underwater demolition teams that later became the Navy SEALs. Okay. So these were some serious guys. I mean, they were... Talk about discipline. Yeah, they bingo, very disciplined. We had checklists for everything. Uh, but they were also tremendous outdoorsmen, sportsmen, surfers, skiers, sailors, and uh, they had a real uh, esprit de corps, and they were full of life, and they really developed a company that was built upon the principle of the golden rule. And um, so I was just surrounded by men and women at an age where, you know, I needed some people to kind of look up to and, and set the way for me. So it was a, a wonderful, wonderful company for many, many years, and discipline and how to treat people and the pursuit of leadership uh, is what really, you know, I take, I took forever. I've taken forever from that company and still some of my very best friends and a wife. So, I mean, <laughs> they started a restaurant that called the chart house. So you had these seals that got together and say, we're passionate about food and beverage. Let's start a restaurant together. Yeah. What a 
amazing foundation of individuals to to start a company. I feel like just to make it to that level to become a Navy SEAL in itself is so impressive. But to get a group of those people together to go accomplish something is like uh, outside of from being a SEAL is got to be something special. Well, I, I was and I had the really good fortune. The commander of UDT one was a gentleman by the name of John Callahan. We actually had a and he was a big Irishman. And he was, you know, everything you'd expect the big Irishman to be, full of life, wasn't afraid of uh, a big goblet of beer or wine. And uh, we even had a prime rib cut called the Callahan cut named after him, which was this giant bone-in cut. And I had many, he told me many stories about his time uh, in, this, in the service. And what was amazing about these guys is they were literally in life and death situations. And all they had, the first thing that came to mind when you think about him was, what great sense of humors they have. Right. And he actually told me this amazing story about going to Vietnam before there was Vietnam to do this mapping project. And uh, uh, he said, you know, they were scared. Everybody was scared. They're coming down this river and they come around this corner and there's another boat and it's these Vietnamese. And they're like, he goes, they couldn't have been more than 14, 15 years old. And all of a sudden he's telling everybody, Hey, you know, stand down. We don't want an incident here. And, something happened he goes it was like a crack of a twig and next thing you know there were shots fired and one of his guys is going captain i've been hit and he uh goes oh my god he he runs over to him and he goes it, it ended before it even started but his guy would have been shot and he goes over to him and he opens up his shirt and he said you're gonna be fine you're just gonna be hungry and he goes what do you mean he goes they got you right in the pork and beans and he literally had a can of beans in his jacket, <laughs> and that's where he got shot. So he was saved by Campbell's pork and beans. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. But you learned right away from these guys that they were unflappable, and they, uh, but they were they serious them. about the work, but yeah. they taught you how to you know, build a team and, and, uh, and, not, and take life a little less serious. So this was in the 80s? It was 1979 when I started. 1979 yeah. when you started. Yep. Um, was it here that you realized this is what you wanted to spend your career doing? Boy, that's a great question. It was... Um, kind of a slow it what was it i never left so um until i left which was 21 years and as a, i was an ex-athlete i played some sp- sports in high school and in uh in college and the thing about this resonated with me about the restaurant business was every day's new and it requires a tremendous amount of teamwork and it requires a lot of getting people in the right places and so for me that was just it like a, a natural from mm. being an athlete and from being on teams. Leaning into people's strengths. Correct. And the other part about that company was along the way, there was just so many people that saw more in me at the time than I saw in myself. And they helped lift me up. When, when I was a giant knucklehead, uh, there were guys coming up to me and saying, hey, you have a knack for this, but you got to stop being such a goofball. What do you mean by a goofball? What kind of stuff were you doing? Well, I was a young young guy traveling the country, opening chart houses, Aspen, Colorado, Monterey, uh, Steamboat Springs, Mammoth Lakes. It was quite a lifestyle. And so, and it was the early 80s when I was doing that. And so, you know, you're working in a restaurant, it was a party atmosphere. Right. Especially um, in the uh, 80s and early 90s. 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people, I saw a lot of people get really sucked up into it in a way that uh, they needed to leave the industry and, and really take account of themselves. And I was fortunate because I had some mentors that grabbed me and said, now you're coming in tomorrow morning early and you're going to do inventory with me and I'm going to show you things. And, and so they, uh, they, they put me in a situation where I, I could really grow and mature and leave the party lifestyle in, in a way that, um, leave it behind and, and start, 
you know, developing a career out of this. Yeah. Can you, do you remember what they said when they, when they pulled you aside and they said, Hey, you know, Al, you have, you know, you're really good at filling the blank. Mm-hmm. What, like what, what was it that they were reinforcing? In you? Uh, well, I think they were, there was two things. First of all, what they were recognizing was that I worked hard and I did it with a good attitude that they could count on me to do the dirty work. And I was just not a person that was afraid of the dirty work. And I always just, you know, I, I think a lot of that, I go back to my grandfather growing up. He was a steel worker in Youngstown, Ohio. And I always just thought, you know, here's a guy that goes to work every day, never complains about anything, works around thousand degree heat and, uh, you know, feeds his family and takes care of his family and never complains. And so there wasn't any job in the restaurant industry that I thought was ever going to be harder than being a steel worker in Youngstown, Ohio. So I had a good attitude about hard work and kind of the dirty work. Yeah. And uh, so th- they recognized that in me. And then um, I like to have fun, but I also wanted to make sure the people around me had fun. So I think that those were the sort of baseline qualities that they saw in me that could resonate and work in the work in the business. Yeah. And there's definitely a coronation or correlation I've picked up on uh, in all these interviews, the power of letting somebody know they're good at something. Just, we were, I don't think at a young age in our, you know, early twenties, late teens, uh, even in close to like our thirties, like we're not very self-aware and what helps us become self-aware is the clues that life gives us, the, mm. the, the what people say to you, the, they reinforce your strengths, but people, you have to reinforce these strengths. You have to let people know that they're good at something because they may not, they, they, this puts you on a path and being see, we need to be seen too. What's, what's, what's going through your mind? I don't want to do all the time. Well, I think that you're hitting a nail on the head and I, you know, the first sort of, tipping point moment was I was dishwashing in the Baltimore chart house. And literally this was a place that would do a thousand covers on a Saturday night. And that's a lot of dishes and you're back there and you were getting just taking it on the chin. And at the busiest part of the night, it was like eight 30 on a Saturday night. And the general manager comes down into the dish room and he says, Al, come with me. And I'm like, "Uh Oh, you know, what did I do? (laughs) This doesn't sound great. And he literally takes me from the dish room and brings me out into the dining room. It was a massive restaurant, three stories. And he takes me to the mezzanine level, which had this amazing view of the Baltimore Harbor. And it was just, it was amazing what was happening on that dining room floor. Uh, the energy was, I mean, you could just feel this energy. People were having a great time. Everyone was hustling. And he kind of put his arm half around me and said, if you ever think your work doesn't matter, look out here. Because if there's one fork or one plate or one glass that hits that table that's dirty before the customer has it, then this slows down. And what's happening here is magical. And you're a part of it. And then he escorted me back to the dish room and I cleaned another 500 dishes and (laughs) went home. But what an amazing moment. And it's something that I never forgot in every level that I've been because I've never seen it done that purposely anywhere else. There was this man that took the dishwasher out to say, Hey, you matter. Mm, Yeah. And like, and just like every link in the chain has a role, but when you're in the back of a house, if you're in dish pit, you never, you never see the, the the fruits of your labor, which is important to to show people look like, like you are like, you are just as as important as everyone. These people on this floor. Uh, I mean, how'd that make you feel? Well, at that point, um, it made me feel, I understood the, the the importance of teaching people the bigger picture because he was showing me the bigger picture and he was investing in me. So there was a, you know, it was a, a big lesson in a lot of ways that 
you know, I'm telling this story 30 years later, so it, it mattered. Yeah. I mean, it's, Simon Sinek's words start with why come to my mind, you know, and people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Mm. But as a dishwasher, that why you, you know, you have to see it to, to believe it. I feel like, you know, it's, it's a bigger picture. Your work matters. Uh, you, when you left the chart house in 2001, you were the vice president of operations. So you went from dishwasher to vice president of operations over a 30, 22 year, 20, yeah, about 22 years. That's wild. Yeah. Man. This is your first job in the restaurant. First industry? job. Holy moly. So how many, like I, I gotta be honest, this is the first time of me ever hearing about the chart house, but it sounds like it was an amazing organization. Yeah. I think that, uh, it's, it's owned by a gigantic restaurant company. Now the billion dollar buyer owns them. Landry's seafood, Tillman for Uh, but along the way, you know, those early days, there's nothing like it. I mean, you can still go on Facebook and there's, old chart house employee Facebook pages where people are doctors, lawyers, all walks of life, teachers, and they still talk so fondly on a daily basis about their experiences with chart house. Certainly nothing like it at the, uh, that I've experienced. And it's also sort of always resonated with me to, if I had the opportunity to have my own company, that those values would, uh, I'd like to bring them forward. Specifically what values? Uh, well, the baseline that how much of a priority people are. And that's just not um, the customer because uh, it's, it's the employee, it's your team, it's your vendors, it's your postman, it's everybody. Everybody plays a role in that. Uh, it, you know, you just, your air condition, you know, try to run a restaurant when your air conditioner's down. Try to run a restaurant when your plumber, uh, when your plumbing's backing up. Uh, you'll, you'll know exactly how important your plumber is at that point. And if you've done it right along the way, they're going to be there for you. And right. they have been time and time again, if that is your core value. And so th- that's the top of it for us is people are the priority. Nick and Greg, my partners at Defined, um, you know, we've adopted that as one of our core values and, and uh, they are, they're all in on it. Mm. So Charthouse to me framed that because I saw it work. So when you left in 2001, how many locations were there? Uh, I believe it was, I believe it was 63. 63. How yeah. many locations were there in to, uh, 1979. Uh, let's see. Uh, Baltimore was 35. So when the day I started, it was 35. So they had, this is a pretty significant organization. Yeah, well, it was. On. Yep. Um, what was your evolution? Because you went from dishwasher to vice president of operations for the entire organization, 60 plus locations. Yes. What was your evolution? Well, it was, first of all, there was a path for it. And it might sound crazy, but I don't think there was a vice president or the president of the company at the time that I worked there that didn't have the same path I did. They were all dishwashers. As a matter of fact, I remember back, I was a general manager. It was probably uh, 1993 or so, 94, and we were having a year-end meeting, and the company had hired this motivational speaker, and he kind of didn't do his homework because he was in this big auditorium, and he asked uh, the question, how many of you started out as a server? And he kind of raises his hand expecting to see of arms go up and not a single hand went up. And he was like a little like dumbfounded by stuttered. And somebody yelled out from the back of the room, how about dishwasher? And he goes, okay, I'll bite. How about dishwasher? And next thing you know, there was a sea of arms up. And so literally the culture was, even if you were being hired as a server, you started in the dish room. Mm. So the company was built on that. And the idea was, is that, you had empathy and understanding of everyone's job in the restaurant. And so that was how the company was built and designed. 
And uh, it's, you know, go back to the Navy SEALs. You, you, you ran in the mud with everybody else, whether you were the commander or the newest guy in. And so um, that was a philosophy that allowed you, if you did the work and did the learning and stuck with it, you could, uh, you could you know, move up the ranks. Yeah. And I, I mean, just the power of giving people opportunity, what does that do from going from dishwasher to server to, I don't know what the, the natural progression was, but what, what effect does that have on people? Well, uh, first of all, it lets everyone see that um, it's not a top-down organization, and it's a very collaborative organization. And I think you definitely, there's not a person in there that can't ask themselves the question, why not me? And to me, if you've, you know, that's the organization, why not me? Why not me take this opportunity? Why not me work for this opportunity? Why not me set goals? Um you know, that, that, that's pretty powerful because, you know, you talk to a ton of people in different organizations and, you know, they feel like there's such barriers in so many ways on a day-to-day basis uh, that it, you could see people, um, you know, be, become disenchanted with their organization because of that. Growth is a human need. I think people forget that. It's right there below self-actualization at the peak of just your human needs. It's If you can tap into personal growth, that is going to help people your people feel so fulfilled. So, yeah. and, and you, if you, I feel like if you start everybody at a low place, like you can kind of naturally tap into that, that like constant progression, you know? Um, and I mean, you're also, like you said, it's just, just, just doing that. Cause so much, I don't know, perspective, like you said, you know, everyone's position and you know how every role fits into the bigger picture. It's yeah. so powerful. Um, it's a great jumping off point from Charthouse, though, because um, growth is uh, growth comes with learning and, and trying to find new things to do and learn. And my next position, ironically, was a company you know, after working 21 years with basically the same food, the same approach. I was cast in a, an entirely different situation uh, because I became the first director of operations for Steven Starr. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about that. I do want to. I, I can only imagine you grew so so much as a professional in this 20 years, 20 plus years working with uh, the Chart House. So what was in this time, in this evolution? What was the hardest part for you going from dishwasher to VP? Where do you think you struggle the most? Mm. Well, I think that part of um, the biggest struggle that I had was that we had such a defined culture, and uh, and because of there was a lot of pressure on the the executives of the company to grow the company because it became a public company. Um, our culture f- fragmented, and we had a new constituent called a shareholder, the market, uh, and that changed a lot of our approach to. Our businesses, and so how we deployed capital became really important to grow the company with that capital. <clears throat> but we were also at the same time an aging company that had taken great pride in in doing these architectural and often monumental uh, renovations in very special places. Did you say agent company? Aging. It started aging. A- okay, aging okay. Yes. So, for example, um, the Boston Chart House was a warehouse, but it was the first office that John Hancock worked out of. Wow. Uh, the Chart House in Baltimore was an old power plant. Uh, across from the Hotel Del Coronado is a boat. It was the, the Coronado boat, boat house that was renovated to become a Chart House. So, 
there was a lot of things that we did um, that made the company really special, architecture being one of them and site location. But as we were aging as a company, because the company started um, in 1961, uh, a lot of that capital was needed for those restaurants. And so we had two kind of tail of the tape. What do we do with our money? Well, the street, the market, the open market wants us to grow the company. That's why people are buying stock in it. But we needed money for the other restaurants to keep them looking sharp as they aged. And often they're in a place of high level of weather. Uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, Miami, you know, you're getting things like hurricanes in the mountains, uh, Aspen, Colorado, you know, snow every year. Those things make buildings deteriorate much quicker. Montara, California, giant surf, Malibu, Cardiff by the sea. So we're in the elements, one of the, one of the special parts of it. But at the same time, it beat the company up. Yeah. So I was at a point, I was at a vice president at the time when these decisions were becoming more and more difficult and, and um, I saw decisions being made. Um, we were making decisions. I wasn't, I was part of it uh, that we were hopefully going to grow the company, but I also saw some deterioration of our, our core values and our culture. So that's a very common struggle. Um were you trying to overcome that struggle or for you was the overcoming of that struggle to go someplace else? Uh, that's a great question. Um, for me, <clears throat> it was time for me to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there were some significant things that happened that, you know, I'd really lost some confidence and lost, uh, the sense of trust that I had in the people that I'd worked with, worked for, for so many years. And so, you know, it, it felt like the right time to go and, and learn something new and and take what I'd learned from Charthouse and bring it somewhere else that I thought could benefit from so it. So you lost trust because the priority became the shareholders, not the organization. Correct. Yeah. Okay. How do we overcome that? Well, it's leadership. And I think that it is uh, an understanding that sometimes a quarterly report, um, I understand the pressure of it, but I believe also that uh, if you're really upfront about what your plans are and what your needs are, and you're just not painting yourself as a growth story, but part of that story is telling the truth to, to the public that we also have these other capital needs. And uh, I think if you get in front of it, people just want to know what the real story is. Yeah. People don't want to feel hoodwinked. Yeah. And though everybody gets excited about the new shiny toy, including a new restaurant, and make no mistake, it was fun to open restaurants. Yeah. And I was proud of that to do so. Um, but if you're not taking care of uh, your core businesses, well, wh- how do you think those employees are feeling about their restaurant when, you know, the door's coming off its hinges and you need new gaskets at the uh, at your reach-ins and you don't have them? And um, I think that the sense of pride starts to diminish at that point. Right. So I think, you know, I've, I've never been the CEO of a public company. So I, I've never sat in those in that chair, and be, you know, and so it's kind of easy for me to say. But that would be my to answer your question. My perspective would be: uh, I think you need more transparency. Mm, yeah, um, I mean, we see it all the time. We see these companies go down, and and you realize it's all because of a lack of transparency, and they didn't keep their promise. Yeah, I mean, I could I could keep keep on going, but we still have so much career and we, we still got 20 years Ooh. of career to cover in your story, in your timeline. So you, I mean, where was Steven Starr's restaurant group in 2001? Paint the picture of that company and, and what, it, what it looked like when you came in. Well, he had uh, five restaurants at the time, six restaurants, pardon me. 
and uh, a couple key people working with him. And ironically, I met Stephen Starr through a headhunter that I'd worked with in chart house days. And so here I was living. I lived in I live in Narberth, so I'm in the area. Uh, he had Continental Old City, which was the smash hit. But the real, you know, the real launching. I mean, I think that launched the company in a lot of ways. But the real big hit when he started to kind of spread his wings and and bring sort of this New York vibe to Philly. I think Stephen is definitely a guy that says, "Why not me? Why not us?" Was Budokan, and so Budokan was open and flourishing, and I think that's when all the eyes went upon him. And then about the time he opened Pod out in University City, out at University of Pennsylvania, um, that's when he and I started talking. And um, uh, so he had five restaurants, and then had some openings coming. And I joined the company when he was under construction at Alma de Cuba. Morimoto and Jones, they were basically all kind of almost simultaneously under construction That's in some wild. fashion. And so he knew um, he needed to build his infrastructure. And uh, believe me, I was not his vibe in a lot of ways. Um, you know, here was this guy that came from one company. He was looking to build this very dynamic, multi-concepted company that had, you know, LA, New York City, aspirations that hey we can compete with anybody and he was getting uh, he was getting to know me who had worked for one company the navy seals we didn't even you know i didn't even love the beatles he loves the beatles <laughs> um i was more of a stones guy and uh so we had a we had more reasons not to get along than get along but steven's very smart in that way because he knew if he was going to grow his company successfully uh, I think he also recognized it, he needs somebody that would think a little different um, and challenge him in a way uh, that is respectful and health, healthy, all the while knowing that he's going to you know, forge ahead in a big way. So what was different about the way you thought? Oh, well, first of all, I, was, you know, I had the systems. Uh, second of all, I, and I was disciplined on my daily operations. So I, I knew how to uh, start thinking about the restaurant before I got to the restaurant and I, I knew how to be really efficient with my time and go in there and ensure that it was all systems go by the time we raised the curtain for the customers. And, uh, and I was very good at that. Uh, secondly, I had the, the human resource piece, the team building piece and the developmental piece. I had a strong track record of building teams and uh, a lot of people got promoted uh, from the teams that I built and that we built. And so, you know, I had a good understanding of what that took and what, what, what really interests people. Um, and I think that that was something that, um, you know, Stephen, you know, very entrepreneurial, very do it yourself, you know, one restaurant at a time. And so I started the, I, I was able to start bringing in this sense of, um, a little more strategy around those elements, around the operations, around the team building. So is, is team building something that you think can be taught or is that like an, an innate ability that you're born with to be able to see strengths in people and put them in the right path? And like what, what is involved with being a good team builder? Well, I mean, I think that the, I don't, I, teams have to be built. You know, you, I think certain people have instincts about leadership and team building, but you know, you look at it, it's why every team has a coach. I mean, it, co- and coaches are developed and not all co- coaches are successful. And so uh, I think that there's so much that goes into just that aspect of becoming a team builder. 
Um, you know, there's a career right there. It's public speaking. It's uh, psychology. It's philosophy. There's so many of the soft skills that can be learned along the way. And most importantly, learning that people will react to you differently. And, and you turn that around and then you really start thinking about what is it that this person needs to be successful? And no two people are, are the same. So if you are a student of that, then that then you're on your way to becoming a coach and a team builder. What are the three most critical elements or abilities to be a team builder? Well, uh, you, I think you have to use both ears. You know, so many times people think that coaching is, you know, we see it on the other end, it seems like they never shut up. But um, I think that the really good ones uh, spend about five times more listening than they do actually speaking. And so I think it starts there. Uh, I think secondly um, is how do you build trust? And so by building trust, that means you, uh, you, it, you that you're putting yourself in a position where people want to go in the direction. How do you, you build trust? Well, I think that there again, again it's that you listen because so often, you know, people go start a job and, and uh, people are going to bark out orders. And I think that, allowing people to feel a part of it and constant follow-up. I think one of the things that I did early on with at Star Restaurants, even the newest anybody, I would make sure that I was getting with on a weekly basis to make sure they were feeling comfortable in their training. And, you know, the company wasn't so big that I, I, I wasn't able to, not able to achieve that. I was able to achieve it because I was disciplined about it. So by me doing that, all the managers in the company saw, wow, he, he shows up and talks to these new people all the time. And, uh, and then the other part is um, when, when I, I tell people very specifically, hey, when I come in and ask, hey, how's it going? I, I follow that up by saying, by the way, this is not a rhetorical question. When I come in and say, hey, how's it going? This is your opportunity. And I can, so, so I follow that up with some reading the body language. And I might ask that question two or three more times if I have a body language read that says something's off. So I've learned that if you ask the question three times, you'll see that the answers start to come. They start to flow. So when people see that now you've listened and then they see follow up and you actually follow up with someone, it doesn't always mean that you're going to give them the answer they want. However, you might come back to them and go, I thought about what you said. We're, we're still going to do it this way, and I hope you can stay on board with me. Let's, let's see this through, but I do appreciate your feedback. It says a lot because you're not going to be able to just uh, act on everyone's thought or opinion. All right, so I'm trying. To, I'm taking notes as you're going. You're dropping gold, by the way. I'm loving what you're giving us. The question was, what are the three elements of team building? You said listening, trust, and I'm going to say recognition. Thank you. You make me sound smarter than I am. No, man, you made it. It was it was beautiful. Um, and you know, one of the the key lessons I've learned about trust. Stephen R. Covey has a son. I uh, can't remember his middle initial, but it's he's also Stephen. He wrote the book, uh, The Speed of Trust. And in that book, he he says just the the best way to get trust is to give trust. Mm. Um, and I feel like I, that was like in between. Like I, I kind of saw it in between the lines of what you were saying, but would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think that, that that's so critical uh, what you're saying. And that, and that's, ju- that's true of almost anything. It's, 
you know, we, the, I guess a really popular word is manifestation, manifesting. Well, it's a popular word for reason because you can manifest trust or distrust and you're going to do it in a fashion. You're going to do it very quickly, by the way. Uh, so you, you don't get a lot of, you know, you don't get a lot of swings at trust. Uh, yeah, it takes years to build seconds to lose. Correct. And so be very careful about that. But I think that, um, I, uh, you know, I, I have a nature that I am, I believe in people and I think that they have room. And so they can only violate my trust by doing something illegal, immoral. Uh, you know, those are like, you know, you got all your strikes out at once. Making mistakes is the opportunity I was given in chart house was to make mistakes. And I made a plenty and, um, uh, but they weren't immoral. They weren't illegal. And so they were supported. And when people learn those lessons and realize, oh my goodness, I'm okay. I'm safe here. Even when I make a mistake, um, that goes a long way. Yeah. When I speak to guests who are as good at communicating and is when I'm really getting into the, the, the conversation, I have this habit of drilling down and getting as much detail as possible. Cause I know you have it. And, uh, I want to make sure we give as much detail to your previous career as your current career. What's going on. I mean, it was all one career, but you know, I, I want to talk about what you have with defined hospitality. So I'm going to zoom up to 30,000 feet and give the big picture real quick. Cause you were with star for three years. Then you went and you worked with, uh, uh, cozy Inc. You were there for three years and then you went back to, uh, star restaurant organization for another almost six years from 2008 to 2013. And then you had, uh, about a two year stint or with chief operating officer at, uh, Jose Tejas, Tejas in border cafe, really great organizations there. I recognize those and then OTG management. So that was 2019. You left OTG. So where does it make sense? Uh, you know, that's the kind of the big picture of where you've been and what you've done. Um, why did you leave star and come back? What was going on there? Well, um, quite frankly, I, uh, was made an offer. I couldn't refuse that's with cozy. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and cozy was an interesting one because I, um, and I have boy, all I think about those experiences, each one of them are just like absolute diamonds in my life for what I learned and what I was able to bring forward especially to, to defined hospitality. So the reason why I left was there was two people that I worked with the chart house that joined that organization and the company was, um, in a lot of trouble and kind of a mess. And there was a strategic plan to basically replace all the leaders and bring in a new team. And, uh, and it was growing, but at the same time, there was actually a lawsuit against the originators of the company at the time. You're talking about chart or cozy. This is cozy. Okay. I just want to make sure. Thank yep. You. And, uh, so it, it looked like a really good, um, to me, an opportunity to work with some people that I knew, loved and trust, trusted. So, so these are people that you met at chart who are now part of cozy. That's correct. That's where I got yep. this. Okay. Yep. And, uh, so I jumped over there and, uh, there was one gentleman who was the president of the company who was uh, actually came from had a fast food background and he was a strategic genius. I'd never seen anything like it. How he approached the problem was unbelievable. So that experience was amazing to get, work with him closely uh, as he approached the problem of Cozy and how he rebuilt it in a, in a meaningful way at that time. Um, the, so I took a lot from it and I gave a lot. I worked really hard 
traveled, did a lot of things. I had a young family. Uh, the one thing that I learned about that experience was I didn't love the market segment, the fast casual. I was really missing, um, and because it, it, being fast casual, it's fast everywhere, you know, like every moment of the day. Whereas in, you know, the sort of full service sit down dining experience that I was accustomed to, there was a lot more time to build relationships, at well, least in yeah. a, at least towards my style. Mm-hmm. I know that there's people that are incredibly successful that are great leaders and great communicators in that market segment, but I could see I wasn't going to be one of them. And, uh, and so, um, I think I helped in a big way, rebuild some teams, got some of the things uh, uh, that we wanted to accomplish in Cozy, but I knew in my heart, my gut, it was, it just wasn't a, a day-to-day work experience uh, with the customer and with the staff that really got me fired up. Did you recognize this? Like, was it hard for you to figure out what the struggle was to put words to the struggle, this feeling you were having, or was it pretty clear that this is this disconnect? Uh, it, it became really clear to me uh, very quickly. And one of the things strategically was happening cozy was like this really cool little idea i used to eat at cozy's and zando coffee and you know it was this more organic thing a lot of the food was um the food was scratch we're baking bread it was this really you know it was tailored after the cozy sandwich shop in paris it's a great story so the story was romantic uh and you know from working even just those three years with star food started to become really more important in my life not just the restaurant company like Charnhouse, but food, different cuisines. So I'd started to really grow. And what became part of the strategy was Cozy was going to become a franchise um, model. And with that, the got the gentleman who was president, he came from a fast food b- background. And so what we were trying to do was standardize everything. And so instead of grilling chicken, we were buying grilled chicken. Um, I saw the product change to become more standardized so it could be a franchise tool. And, yeah. and that just, uh, Hey, I understood the plan, but it just wasn't, it just, my heart wasn't in that. Yeah. That's why, I mean, that's why we have core values. That's why we have visions. That's why, so people can get on board. And if, if you're not on board with that, now, you know, you know, and, and that, that you're by getting people off board sooner, you're doing yourself as an organization, you know, uh, justice yeah big time and the you know and, and i'm i was making a lot of money yeah. you know but at the end of the day my wife's like are you sure I mean, <laughs> we're learning the more we learn about human behavior and what it takes to be happiness like you will never have enough money it's like a drug uh, the more you get the more you need yeah because you will just acclimate to whatever level of whatever how much you have and that becomes normal it will yeah <laughs> you know um the uh the thing about that is <laughs> Uh, that was an itch. Yeah, um, I was kind of trying. I was like, yeah, trying the, to uh, be sneaky over here. What's, uh, if you're watching I, the video. I wish my uh, my opening um, quote was save the rays, right? <laughs> you know, you start working. If you live on that the rest of your life and just save the rays, you're you're going to have all the money you need, but that's not how it works. You're I think, right. Like the, 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 they did a study and it was, this number is probably on a sliding scale, but the, the average household to, to achieve happiness in the sense of security, really the trick is achieving a sense of security. And once you have security, that's really after that, like it's, you can, ha- you can make billions and you'll never truly be happy. But one, I think it's 80,000 a year or something like that. Yeah, once I, you hit that point, it's just like, what's the, what's the point to make more? Mm, yeah. And at most restaurants, I feel like, 
for management, we can hit that. That's a goal that I think is achievable. It's sure. With, not, maybe not for everybody right now, but I think it's within reach within our lifetimes. I agree. Know? I think it, uh, I think that that happiness level is very attainable in being a restaurant chef and manager. So before we move on to why you went back to star, I'm curious, you said that this gentleman was a, uh, strategic genius. What did you learn about strategy? What didn't you, what were you not aware about and what, what did you put on your radar? Uh, great, great question. I think first of all, he was a master of time management in a, in a meaningful way. And I, I can tell you, I used to get, I didn't, he didn't, uh, and he didn't micromanage. He expected his executives to do their job and bring their expertise. Uh, I, I would have a monthly meeting with him. At some point, it got to a monthly meeting where initially I was meeting with him once a week. And I think once he sort of saw that, you know, I had an appetite for work and getting stuff done, I had more and more rope but i would literally go and see go to his office it started in manhattan and we moved the corporate offices to a suburb of chicago and he would literally meet me at the door at his office exactly on time he would bring me in and as he's ushering me in we'd be talking sports while we're walking to the chairs we would talk family sports till we got to the chairs for five minutes catch up on family for five minutes and then we do business for 50 minutes and with like, you could almost like there was a scoreboard clock behind him and he'd literally be taking notes and with 10, nine, eight, all the way down to zero, <laughs> he'd spin to his uh, back of his desk, put the Al Lucas folder away, lock it and walk me to the door. And so he was the master of time management. He did not flitter away a moment. And then the other thing he, so that was one thing I, I watched that. And so why is that important? he's managing a big organization he has marketing he has finance i mean it's a big organization and there's some you'll see how this comes back to star now um so i i got a you know i had a front row seat for that secondly and he had a book on everything every department he had categorized what the goals were and he ran masterful masterful executive meetings and I just remember one quote to him. He goes, Al, honestly, we could be, when you're this high up in a company, you could be selling toilet seats. You're uh, an executive now. You're managing people from a high level. And um, so it was great wisdom in terms of organizationally uh, a mindset. But of course, it also at the same time was feeding my thing that, boy, uh, I, I'm, I, don't, I never expected to be a chain restaurant vice president. Um, so that led me back to star. Got it. Got it. So 2008, you're back with star. Um, when you left star, did you kind of leave the door cracked open a little bit with like the, the idea that maybe you'd want to come back or were they hiring for like you're a director of operations. And then when you came back, you were vice president of operations. Right, yeah. So, um, did they just know how good you were? And when they found out you were back on the market, they said, well, Steven and I are, uh, I, you know, I consider Steven and I are friends and, uh, you know, we don't talk all the time, but we talk when we talk, it's like, you know, we're working together. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, you know, we could probably have a weekend of a podcast of just my time with Steven, but we, we always stayed in contact. And, uh, so, you know, I put my feelers out there with Steven specifically, and he had some things going on and, um, it was perfect timing for both of us. And which, and it was really interesting to come back because I'd seen there, there'd been some really smart people that were in the positions that I were in 
that had come and gone, but they'd made some significant changes to the company, which I thought were phenomenal. In a lot of ways, uh, what I would have done if I would have stayed, I saw executed extremely well by some very smart people. Can you get into that? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think first of all, the HR department became more robust. And Stephen, you know, I think the people really showed Stephen that there's more risk in not having a, a robust, smart HR department than he uh, recognized at the time for a guy that wanted to really grow his company. And I think that the, he, those people were ahead of the curve in terms of um, just, you know, how is that organization going to treat people? Because Stephen, you know, when, when, is a, the master entrepreneur, when he was frustrated with how things were going, he would reel it back into and try to take care of it himself, which becomes more and more difficult as yeah. you're growing a company. So it was this sort of mentality, nobody can do it better than me. And, uh, you know, he, he would permeate the organization. But there were some people that really convinced him that, um, A, it wasn't going to help him do his best work, what he's great at for the organization. And B, there's just inherent risk in always having a, issues come back to him to solve. Um, so I think that's one aspect. Secondly, it became, um, uh, I think, the thing I saw that, that I actually started, I was very proud of, is, was uh, P&L reviews with the general managers. And uh, one of the, I, a funny story was I said to Stephen, this is my first stint, hey, I want to sit down and review the P&Ls with the general managers and the chefs. And uh, they, were, they had never done that. So there was no transparency to the actual results. And one of the things I've, I learned early on is when managers and chefs and sous chefs, assistant managers, one of the things they want to learn is how does the business run? Yes. And, you know, in, in a restaurant company like Chardass, it was total transparency. The scoreboard was always lit. Um, it wasn't the... It wasn't the most important thing every day, but we knew what the score was. Yeah, you need your scorecard. You need to know how you're performing. Exactly right. And Stephen's line was, it was great. He said to me, then they're going to see how much money we make and they're going to steal from us. And I said, Stephen, they're they're already stealing from us. (laughs) And and he said, are they? And he got all paranoid. I go, I don't know yet. Let's review the P&Ls. I'll tell you later. (laughs) And uh, after we started that process, uh, existing restaurants, I don't even want to, the number was pretty astronomical of our profit improvements in one year just by going through I the wanna, P&Ls. I want to drill down on that, um, but I'm curious. Like, What were the keys? You said the HR, like everything you would have done was done in the time you were gone. You came back and they were making the progress you would have made. What was missing in the HR that was there when you came back? How did they evolve that? Uh, I think, well, first of all, Stephen... Stephen's belief in the need for HR. Everything starts there, okay. right? Why do we need HR? Um, I think he he wanted to grow the company. Well, HR includes a lot of things: onboarding, recruiting, um, compliance, legal compliance, uh, training. So he understood now HR was a much more robust thing versus you know somebody's upset and we got to have a chat with them. You know, that in his mind, that's all HR was, yeah. is, you know, make sure uh, everyone's happy, even when someone's unhappy. So I think that, uh, well, I don't think I saw that he was convinced because Stephen, he, w- he does his homework. And, you know, it, and he'll eventually when it resonates with him, when he's has that silent little moment and he has his aha moment, he, he'll go all in. 
And so I think that that's what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, so he, he sounds like he, there was a culture there, but HR is putting system process to culture and training and like all those things and really protecting yourself too, because sure. at the end of the day, if you're not covering your butt with HR, it's, it's a much likely, much more likely that a lawsuit will hit your Yeah. I mean, it's wrongful it, firing or, or unlawful firing or whatever it might be. Correct. Wrongful and, termination. And I think that's the key. Wrongful word. termination. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, trust me, Stephen, Stephen doesn't want that. Yeah. And the more money you make, the more enticing it becomes for people to knock you down a peg because they know you got it. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, that's certainly, um, I'm, you know, there's certain people have that mentality, you know, it's I, not most people, but they exist out there. But the, as you get bigger, you have more to lose. 100%. Yeah. And people become more cynical of you. Yeah. And like we talked about earlier, you know, it takes one bad press release to lose the trust with a city that you spent years building sure. trust with. So um, I think we can move on from there. But P&Ls and the other big part is open book management is what I'm getting from you. The power of open book management. How did this move the needle? Open book management. Well, uh, it did a few things. First of all, um, people recognized that their day-to-day habits mattered. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, simple things like air conditioning that is turned down at night when there's no one in the restaurants, uh, uh, designing restaurants that had automatic light turn off and walk-ins, things like that. You know, why have a light on all night and a walk-in? So what happens? What do you gain when you bring the team in on these narratives? Well, I think that is us keeping that promise to them of we're going to show you how to be a better business person. So they start seeing your business like their business. Correct. And then, you just what ends up happening is it's 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 the opposite of death by a thousand it's life by a thousand cuts you know and you get these different perspectives you would have never otherwise gotten because you're opening yourself up you're making a team of owners and every person on your team is intelligent they have their they have a level of their own genius uh, their own perspective and when you open yourself up to that potential energy it's like having infinite entrepreneurs on your team bingo and and Stevens, these these the P and L review, it's it, it, very interesting. You say it in that fashion. I mean, we're we're recruiting the best of the best, and so all of a sudden now we're creating this environment. It wasn't just us saying, "Hey, we need to turn the lights off." We were bringing in people that had great experiences elsewhere, and they go, "Hey, have you thought about this? When I was at X company, we did this, and it saved us, you know, twelve dollars a day. Well, twelve dollars a day." times 365 times 24 restaurants, that becomes a significant idea. Mm -hmm. And so now people, everyone's feels free and energized by participating in these measures that make it a better company. But it becomes a, it becomes a game because we talked about earlier with chart house, the importance of a scorecard. Mm -hmm. People don't know what their effort amounts to. And when they can see that their effort can move a needle and if you gamify that, and if you can find a way to gamify that and compete between shifts or whatever it is now, it just, there's something that happens there. It, It goes from being a job and going through motions to being somebody who can contribute. Right. Yeah. I think that that's important. Uh, you know, people say, if you had to give me one, um, people would ask me this as they'd go to star and even in our organization now, you know, what's one piece of advice you could give me? I said, I will tell you, think about your day as an owner and you, and if you want to be an, then you will become an owner and it's magic if you do that. Yeah. Um, so you spent another six years away from star before coming to, to or joining, uh, 
to find hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, they opened, to find started in 2016. Correct me. If correct. I'm wrong. So you came later on. Yes. Uh, what's worth talking about between? Uh, I guess I should ask. Why did you leave Star a second time? I mean, it sounds like you wanted to go back. And what was the reason for getting away a second time? Well, uh, there's. The second time was, again, I was made an off. I was recruited heavily to be the chief operating officer, and I thought that we had done um, an amazing job of opening restaurants with Star, and we and Le Diplomat in Washington, D.C. was sort of my last opening, and it was a resounding hit, and it's, I think it just had its 10-year anniversary, something I'm very proud of uh, of our team to this day at Star that we opened that restaurant. Um, there was a part of me at this point where, first of all, I, I wanted to own, you know, I was really, I, I'd approached every day like an owner and I wanted to own and I was given an opportunity to be an owner in, in, um, uh, Jose Tejas border cafe. And the other part I was looking at in, in that organization in particular was it was a pretty unfettered position to be the chief operating officer. And I felt like it was going to really afford me the opportunity to really test my, full philosophies on leadership. The, the way the organization, it was a small organization with an owner that didn't want to be in operations on a day-to-day basis. And so I really saw an opportunity to go out there, to go there and say, you know what, this is, this is going to be a real test of, of me and my leadership. At the end of the day, and I say this with all respect, it was Steven's company. And I know he'll tell, he would tell you that, that I had a huge impact in it. And, um, and I'm proud of that. And I was proud to work with him, but it was his company. What were you missing? Uh, I think that the buck stops right here. So what do you mean by that? Uh, that every decision that the, or that there was always, you know, every, the buck stopped with Steven. Yeah. And, so uh, and day, that was plain and simple. If you didn't agree, um, he would, he was the shot caller. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it a, did, did, and I wouldn't, you know, and I, and I don't blame them. Well, what about, so is it just the fact that you couldn't be the final decision maker? Uh, a little more than that. Uh, I think it was also that, you know, he, uh, he led the organization. Um, and I was a part, I was a big part of that. I wanted to see if I could lead an organization. I mean, I hate to use the word ego, but was it ego based? Ego. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be at the same time, I'd, ego is such a, it carries such negative con. Uh, I don't. I always want to say condensation, which is not the right yeah. word. Con- condonation. Did I say it right? Uh, I was afraid I'm going to spit that out wrong. Connotation. Connotation. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, but we all have ego. Yeah. I, I think it's important for people to realize that, like, if you say you don't have an ego, you're full of shit. Because we, it, it's a part of being human that we have this identity, of this this narrative, the story, uh, this idea of who we are. That's our ego, uh, and it's important that we're seen. And well, that, that we're recognized for the work we do, we want to be seen. It, it's part of it's one of those human needs that I was talking about earlier. Is, is it's right above security is being recognized, being loved, being seen. So it's only natural. I don't think it's a dirty thing to feel this way. It's just it's human nature. Yeah. I, well, it's a there's that's one way of looking at it, and it's certainly ego plays in it. But you 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 said something very early in our in our conversation about growth uh, that we all have a desire to continue to grow. Yeah. And so in this situation, it was certainly ego was involved, but it was really an opportunity for me to grow. And so if I was really lining it up, I was, I had a great job. My wife was super upset when I was leaving star restaurants. She's like, are you nuts? 
<laughs> she See, loves this is a recurring theme. Yeah, I was like, when what I are leave, you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It was like you worked you worked one place for twenty one years, and now you like you know ch- you change anytime you feel like it. Uh, but but I really I was I would still grow at Star, but it was an expansion of the same. And my personal incremental growth was I saw starting to diminish, and so. I really looked at it as an opportunity for me to really spread my wings in a, in a bigger way. So you're almost getting um, disenchanted by not having that ability to be the final call or the, 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 the shot caller, the bucks up. Like, yeah. I uh, just, I just felt that I wasn't gro- growing in a, in a f- fashion that made me feel vital. Got it. So when you, when you left star the second time you, you uh, ended up with um, Jose Tejas and border cafe. You had, ownership because it says chief operating officer was it like a yeah i was a partner sharing? yeah partner? i was a partner got it um one year eight months yeah what happened with this partnership um i'll tell the story okay that's what we're it's here. a good one yeah so we were uh we were looking at um growing the company and we had a game plan and i was part of my job was to strengthen the, the restaurant managers every management team was very undermanned and I accomplished that in a big way. And I was also looking at providing some infrastructure to um, the company that would allow us to grow the grow from there. And that's where the real incentive for me to join the company was. And um, I think that uh, when I looked around the company, I saw sort of a lack of any diversity whatsoever. And I had a key person that I was amazing talent and brought some and it just happened to bring diversity, which I didn't know till I met them. Uh, and after I, you know, I had several conversations and, uh, I think that the people that were, um, that I worked with, um, they weren't interested in diversity. Are you saying diversity? You're saying diversity among the people working there or? Yeah. People of color. Got it. Yeah. And so, um, that's when I, and I knew immediately that this it was the wrong organization for, for me. Got it. Uh, well, I'm happy you found out fast. You yeah. Um, it was great so to find out. When, when something makes you a partner, I mean, does that like muck you up the waters with legal situations? Like you're, they give you equity, then you've got to sell your equity back. Like how does that work? Yeah, it was, you know what? There's, there was, uh, uh, it wasn't, there wasn't anything that significant in that manner. It was pretty, we had a, a smart agreement, um, smart on both sides. What would, what made it smart? Uh, the fact that um, I w- it was really clear how, what I was vested in and, and what my walk away would be. Yeah. I mean, the biggest benefit, in my opinion, about partnership agreement is the exit. Is if things it happens more often, partnerships don't work out more often than they do work out. Mm. So when they don't work out, you need to go, go into that partnership with the expectation that it's almost not going to work out. So when, if it doesn't, you, there's no issues. You can walk away and it's clear from the beginning what's going to happen if it doesn't work out. Yeah. Is and that what you did? Yeah, it was really simple. And, uh, and gentlemanly and handshake and, you know, there was no, there wasn't any animosity whatsoever. It was a really clean, clean break. Got it. Uh, is it worth talking about OTG? Uh, yeah, it was great. Okay, so you were there for three years. Yeah, it was a, a mountain of work, something I never envisioned for myself. And ironically, I went to work with them with a co-vice president that I worked with at Star Restaurants for many years. And uh, he was the vice president. And we did 
there was a big vision to b- build these restaurants in airports that were um, really out of the norm and that the quality of the food, the service, the experience was, you know, elevated from our normal everyday airport experience. And so it was a ginormous job uh, with big aspirations. Uh, I spent literally two years up at the Newark airport, opened 30 some concepts, uh, built it, built teams, uh, met amazing people, some of the hardest work I've ever done. There's so many hurdles to, you know, and difficulties in building a restaurant and staffing a restaurant. You throw in an airport environment where people have to go through background checks and uh, you might hire somebody and they don't get their background check for six weeks. Well, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to get a job. Right. Um, I think that, uh, um, especially in the restaurant industry, people who are looking for jobs in this industry don't have six weeks to wait. Like, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so we did some really big stuff and big work and I met some great people. Uh, I've built some, I, I'm, and our team grew and, uh, I had a lot of fun. And one of the things that we did at OTG, which was cool, is that we would partner with uh, local c- celebrity chefs to build concepts. And so I also expanded my Rolodex of who I got to meet and, and, uh, and went down to Houston, did the same thing. There was a new uh, uh, terminal built down at the Houston Air- uh, Airport, George Bush Airport, uh, from the ground up. And OTG won the contract for that. And we made a huge footprint down there and did some absolutely stunning work. Um, Chris Shepard, a chef from Houston of great merit was just here in Philadelphia, ate in one of our restaurants. I've seen him the last two years as he's come in for the uh, chef conference here. And those are just relationships that I met for that opportunity with OTG. Um, and the other thing about OTG, it was a very tech-heavy company, which is certainly not my strength. And uh, so that forced me to learn a lot more about technology, not only in the moment, but p- potentially where it was going. I mean, a great time to learn about technology because that sets you up for COVID. Yeah, know, like- and that was 100%. <laughs> and, you know, we sort of have this sort of IT moment in uh, in our company where if Al can do it, anybody can do it. So it's probably... Uh, <laughs> if I was in the company, it would be if Eric can do it, anybody yeah, can do it. So yeah. I can get I get you, man. Right. I break technology. Technology does not like me, um, but I've, I manage. Um, so you mentioned something, and it's more of like a... I might just... You know, I'm going to sit on this question. I'm going to make a note. We'll, we'll, we'll bring it back because kind of struck a vein, but I want to make sure we spend time to talk about what you got going on with Defined Hospitality. So we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to get into Defined Hospitality and how this opportunity came to your, your attention. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. 
recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker too because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to one huddles game shop, which includes 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time. But the ways to find out what's actually happening with the guests are terrible. Long surveys are annoying. Nobody likes to take them. Table touches aren't scalable. And every negative review costs you 30 new customers. Ouch. That's where Ovation steps in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave positive reviews, unhappy guests to share what happened, and it gives you specific ideas to improve. Using a simple two-question survey, guests either click a text message they get after placing an order or scan a QR code to easily answer, how was your experience? Happy guests leave five-star reviews and can be invited back with automated text marketing. 
and unhappy guests share privately what went wrong so you can resolve your concerns in real time. Then the magic happens. Ovation takes all the public reviews and all the Ovation private feedback and analyzes them in a single simple view so you can know exactly what to fix and where. It's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's OvationUp.com slash unstoppable. We are back, and the, the year on your timeline now is 2019. Um, why did you leave OTG? Well, I left OTG to come work with uh, Greg Root and Nick Kennedy and define hospitality. So wh- what happened? Was it Were you headhunted, or were you just through the grapevine? You heard that they were looking for somebody? Well, it started in 2002. Okay. I hired Greg Root as an assistant manager at Jones Restaurant. Okay. So uh, this, these, this wasn't a foreign organization to me. Greg and I had worked together for quite some time. I did see the overlap at Star, Loca- at Star yeah. Restaurant, so I was curious about that. And then one of, the, uh, one of our partners in um, Define Hospitality is Roland Cassis, who's the, one of the, is a big developer here in Fishtown. And as a matter of fact, uh, Soraya, really the flagship restaurant, is uh, the namesake of his grandmother. And in many ways, his vision that Greg and Nick Kennedy – uh, executed. But I'd known Roland for years because he was often in the star restaurants and I had a corner office and right outside the corner office was uh, the waiting area. Uh, and he was often there hours waiting to me- have meetings with Stephen. And so I got to know Roland and uh, fast forward. Um, Greg is the general manager of pod restaurant and he comes to me. I'm the vice president and says, Hey, I'm a I'd like another opportunity here. I've been here a few years and really have an itch to do something new. And I said, well, you've never opened a restaurant and uh, there's no experience like it. You should uh, really consider that. And I, we have this beer garden that we're going to be opening in Fishtown, Frankfurt Hall. And uh, you should really give that some thought. Uh, going through an opening, I know, you know, you're coming from a sushi restaurant, a lot of moving parts, kind of a sexy place. Uh, it's sausages and beers at, fish, at, the, uh, at Frankfurt Hall, but it's going to be an important restaurant for our company because we're going to Fishtown and it's you know some risk involved. There's nothing over here at this time. Johnny Brenda's and that's about it. And, um, and the opening, I promise you, will be an experience that you won't regret. And Greg said, well, I, I am interested. I just need you to know something. I said, what's that? And he goes, uh, I don't drink beer. I said, well, I'm not hiring you to drink the beer. <laughs> I'll drink, I'll drink the beer. You run the business. So, um, Greg came over and, uh, opened the restaurant. He and I, and, uh, another gentleman, Josh Mann would comprise the major part of the, of the management team. And he did an amazing job, not just opening that restaurant, which was incredibly successful to this day. Uh, but you could see, you know, Greg really became a, uh, a big member of, uh, the Fishtown community. Got it. So you already knew, what Greg was about. You had experience, you hired him, you were impressed by him, you gave him the opportunity. Um, in 2019, like, were you following a story with Define that had been open for three years at this point? How many locations were they at in 2000? Well, they had their, Greg and Nick opened their original restaurant, which is Root. And uh, understand that 
we're talking all the time. At this point, we became friends. And so, you know, he would call me and ask me questions along the way, what I thought about this. And I would see Roland and, you know, we would discuss the future. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, maybe someday we can do something together. But even before then, I'm uh, one of these guys that do these giant lists of things they want to do in their life. And somewhere along the way between 2002 and 2019, um, I had written that, and I always write it like it's already been done. Um, I opened, I, uh, I, that I'd opened a Mexican restaurant with Greg Root. That was one of the things that I'd written down, which we did. Check. Yep. Check. So I'd written that down well before there was Root Restaurant. Um, so, uh, there had been a lot of discussions at some point when it was really, um, so you're almost manifesting this going way back. Oh yeah. yeah. And we were having discussions and it was kind of this thing where, uh, you know, Greg and Nick both have young families. They each have two young children getting bigger, quicker. And, uh, but at that time they were, you know, babies practically. And, uh, and I was earning extraordinarily well with OTG and doing great work. And so part of it was strategic of when, you know, and they wanted to grow the company. When would it make sense that three families could live right. off of off the growth? Right. And uh, and so after uh, Greg and Nick and Roland, they opened Soraya. They reconceptualized Root to R and D the cocktail bar. And uh, along that time, they'd also met Joe Badia, the true name Bedia, and uh, and started to lay out the plans for um, the pizzeria. At that point, just looking at the financials, and, and they'd also won the bid to, uh, to a management agreement at the um, um, Pod Hotel, where we did Condesa and El Techo. So that was also under construction. And at that point, uh, the finances and the growth plans, and then, you know, I think what I would bring to the table made sense for everybody. So you were aware of what was going on back in probably 2015. You Correct. know, like you knew this was going to be a thing. Um, and I think it makes sense at this point. You're you're more advanced in your career than the other gentlemen are. Is that safe to say as far as tenure? Tenure, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you had the track record. You could go get picked up and get that six-figure, you know, COO or type job. Like you had that security in your, your track record. So yep. it was easier for you to, to, to float your ship than these <laughs> other two. I'm, 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 I'm filling gaps right in here. No, so I, strategic I think in that sense. No, very. I, I mean, I, I went way up and then, and I had the ability to come down. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what, what happened in 2019 that made them ready for you? Like, was there a, a, a goal that you guys hit a number you hit? Like, when did you know it was like, how did you know that this operation could float? all three families. We, we, uh, we had several meetings and did a lot of, uh, ran a lot of numbers, looked at P and L's and thought about, you know, how, how would we still be able to satiate investors while we grow the company and also just get this baseline, um, salary, call it, you know, earnings that all three families would feel good about it. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, as the company was growing, Greg and Nick were coming up and I was coming way, you know, I was coming down a lot. So I, but I'd spent a lot of time. Uh, what do you mean you were coming down? In, in, in earnings. Oh, okay. Significant. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I prepared for it. And, you know, the goal was to be, for me, this was, a, you know, a dream come true. Because this was, I mentioned earlier, the ownership piece. Uh, great partnerships. Uh, people that I loved, that I would 
I look forward to seeing every yeah. day. You know, yeah. all the all the right things about a partnership were coming together. So I love partnerships. I honestly, I'm full believer that to be competitive in today's market, the 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 days of the Steven Stars are almost going away, where you can't be the only person who owns equity in a business and expect to attract onto yourself the talent you need to be the best. It's there's so many amazing restaurants out there. I think it's hard to do it by yourself. Yeah, I think uh I I don't I don't think it would be as much fun either. There's yeah. in that. Too. Yeah, I mean, who who would who's there to laugh at your joke? Pie's always better when it's shared, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh so I mean, I have my two best friends are both entrepreneurs that have their own businesses. Um and they have no partners. They have kind of, you know, they're bringing up their sons in both instances or now their partners, but they often tell me that uh they envy me because I have partners that they can you know we can bounce ideas off we can argue we can uh laugh cry cheer goof around and they said you know they say the toughest part of owning their own business is owning their own business when they're all alone right um greg is sitting in the room right now we're going to be talking about him in a little bit so i don't know but i feel like you guys probably have a situation where there's candor in the relationship so anything that you're about to say to him or about him right now probably has already been said to his face safe to say uh, probably <laughs> in triplicate. Yeah. Where, uh, candor would be, uh, the understatement. And I will tease the audience. Uh, Greg is on deck to be the next guest. So we're going to be diving deeper into the, the, the come up of defined hospitality in the first three years. Um, but we're, what was it? Cause I noticed you guys are both operations people and I'll be frank. Like when I looked at the, 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 well, Eli Culp specifically mentioned Al and, um, Greg at defined. So that was one. And then I saw there was a third partner, Nick, the third partner, the, the executive chef. Um, was there going to be issue with you guys getting each other's way as far as like being in the same lane? Was that an issue for you guys? Like who, how did you guys decide who was responsible for what? We're, uh, we're still working on that. Yeah, we, we, it's probably, uh, you know, we're a three headed monster in a lot of ways. And, 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 uh, that definition of who's got what is something that we're still not great at. Uh, but I also, at the same time, I feel like the world of operations has gotten so much more complex in the world in the restaurant. Like it's getting more and more complex. I feel like to be a successful restaurateur. Do you agree with that statement or not? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it, it's never been more complicated and, uh, and more stringent in terms of everything, rules, finances, you, you name it. Uh, it's intense yeah. and, and it's always been, you know, at any moment, there's probably a moment in, Every day of my career, I'm like, man, this is intense. This is, you know, I, I have a lot of, uh, I said, uh, jet pilots don't use rear view mirrors, but if I look over my shoulder, it's never been a time like this. Yeah. Um, so I guess where does it make sense to spend the, the, the time we have left together? I mean, how many restaurants were there in 2019? Well, we had, um, we had R&D, the cocktail bar, and we had Soraya with, okay. and, uh, and Badia was under construction. Got it. Uh, so since coming on board, you've opened three additional concepts. Yeah. Well, really four. Um, because and, we have we opened the pizzeria, we opened Condesa, we opened El Techo, though they're connected and they opened somewhat simultaneously. They are two different concepts, just you know, share a kitchen, uh share a location, and then we opened Kalia recently in November. Yeah. Um so I mentioned Nick earlier. The reason why I wanted to focus on you and Greg was because I don't speak chef. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I've found that chefs tend to want to talk about food. A lot. And I, I know a lot of what has to, I mean, if you're opening a restaurant, I hope you or somebody you know knows how to cook, right? Yeah. That's sure. a given. Can yep. you do everything else? And then it's really the everything else that gets me excited. So 
as of 2019 to today, four years later, what has been your focus? What makes sense for you to talk to for the rest of our time? Like how, what impact have you had on Define since coming back? Well, uh, I think first I would say start, starting right with uh, the pizzeria is I, when I came in, we were ambling along with the construction and there was no real end date. And so, and Greg and Nick picked up on this very quickly as I suggested this is we need to set a date when this construction needs yeah. to be done. We need to budget out the rest of this construction because there was no ending and there was no budget. It was build the suit. It was kind of built like Roland had built many of his other location, other properties. And, uh, and we needed to start adding managers and chefs to run it. And, you know, you start paying them before you open. That's just called debt. So I think that uh, right from the get-go that I created some structure around the development of the project and a budget around the project and a timeline around the project that probably saved, you know, I would say conservatively $250,000, if not more. And we had a date that we opened, uh, which was probably six weeks to two months earlier than it would have if I wouldn't have started with the company. So is it safe to say that your strengths are more in the build out and you had at this point you had more experience than Greg because yeah. that's what you were doing with uh, Star and you were also doing with um I mean that's kind of what you did is you were going you were opening restaurants even with Chart House that's yeah. kind of what your thing was so I've opened more restaurants than Steven Star so budgeting yeah so budgeting and uh, just project management well remember I talked about the uh, the gentleman when I was with Cozy uh, corporate strategy. I, I developed a corporate strategy where we started to look at each pocket of the business, whether it be development, HR, our financial team. Uh, and we've changed literally all of that, uh, every aspect of it, um, since I came on board. So I, I would say that developing a corporate strategy with Nick and Greg um, has been my biggest input. So when you say corporate strategy, what are the elements? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of elements yeah. involved with that, but specifically, is it figuring out, I mean, what, what exactly did you do? Well, I think that first of all, it, it was creating budgets for development, yep. timelines for development, um, making sure they, ha we had a, an opening checklist, but making sure that we actually used the tool, uh, and also taking a look at, okay, if we're going to be opening this next restaurant, what's the impact to all the other things that we do? How much more can our one uh, accountant handle? Yeah. Like how m much resources is this new restaurant going to pull from the other restaurants? Exactly right. And then secondly, um, what, what else? It's just like crystal balling. If we do this, what's the effect to the organization? So uh, just some smarter decisions and very collaborative. I mean, I think I... I was the one that had the opportunity because Nick and Greg were super, like super on the floor in the kitchen still to this day, you know, yeah. to this day in a lot of ways, I was the one that it was able to like, kind of step in fresh, not get, you know, worry about the pita at Soraya and put some things down in an outline for us to discuss and then act on. Got it. Um, what was the biggest struggle for you? Oh, uh, hmm. I think the biggest struggle for me was the fact that um, I had to learn to be 33 and a third. 
And, uh, and so you're still you, you your own owner, but you're not the buck doesn't stop at you. It stops at you and to other people. Correct. And not only did I have to be 33 and a third, I also had to, you know, respect the fact that Greg and Nick had already done some incredible heavy lifting with the opening of Soraya. So, you know, they had the the they had earned they had they had the most sweat equity at that point. So I had to honor that sweat equity, and also. Uh, but still earn my, my keep and help uh, make an impact for the organization. And, uh, you know, Greg and Nick, they didn't start a company to get a boss. You know, they started a company to own, to be owners in a company. And so, you know, me coming aboard means they had to share in that ownership. And so I I think the biggest thing was for me to be really mindful and respectful uh, of that. Um, And so what I, the way I do that, and what I had to learn to answer that question is I, uh, I don't speak first. I wait. Mm. I pull my punches. And I think that my volume of contribution verbally uh, is significantly less than it would be if in different circumstances. Yeah, first seek to understand, then seek to be understood. Yeah. And I yeah. think there's a lot of power in just – and that's why we're getting Christine Miles on the show. We're going to be talking to her tomorrow, the, the author of What Is It Costing You Not to Listen? Because uh, there's so much information you can pull just by shutting up silencing your inner voice and just listening and pulling in data and and understanding and empathizing with the big picture. And once you have that information, once you have that data, you you have more like you're equipping yourself with like the information to make the right choice and to make sure everyone's happy. Yeah, absolutely. The other, you know, cool thing. And I had to learn was, okay, at this point now, I haven't been with Greg and operations for a while and I, I'm just meeting Nick. So I had to also develop my relationship with Nick and uh, you know, Greg and I had such familiarity with each other. Uh, I had to be careful. I think there were certain times where, you know, Greg and I were incredibly chummy together and Nick was sort of the odd man out, even though him and Greg had been working together longer or more recently. So making sure that I was mindful that uh, I had to build a relationship with Nick in particular um, was a was an important thing for me to pay attention to. I think one of the good news is for me was um, and good fortune of working with star restaurants for all that time is um, you know I, I worked with a lot of really good chefs and mm-hmm. so I had some pretty good I have some pretty good food chops because of it. Yeah. Um, sorry. Go ahead. No. And so that you know so Nick and I had a I had a common ground that he yeah. he he knew that I um, wasn't making it up about my comments about food that I. You know, I've worked in some kitchens. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so with our time together, I mean, I just want to make sure that the things that you're speaking towards are the things that you as a representative of the fine hospitality are uniquely positioned to speak to. Because we're going to have Greg on the mic after you. And I want to make sure, you know, he's staying in his lane. You're staying in your lane. So what haven't we discussed as far as uh, defined where you are today, the challenges you're having, the knowledge you would like to pay for to the next generation of professionals? Mm. Well, I think, um, the, you know, it's hard to sit here. I I think it's almost impossible to answer that without some reflection on, uh, what we went through in the pandemic and what we learned from that. So how are you, how has that galvanized you? How are you better today because of it? Uh, we are extraordinarily better because what we did was we also paid really close attention to, uh, that onslaught, there was a lot of negativity about our industry during that time period. And you, we've all heard about the, you know, the big resignation and 70, you know, with a number 75, 80% of the people left the, the industry and only 20% of them returned. 
Um, so we paid really close attention to what that commentary was and, and how we could address that for our organization. And, uh, and we took some big steps, I think really giant steps to, uh, to respond to what we were hearing. Uh, and I'd say, you know, some of them were, you know, sort of nuts and bolts, uh, benefits, insurance, qualifications, vacation pay, front of house, back of house equity, all those things and, and made significant improvements, uh, in all of those instances. And, you know, none of our pro formas for these restaurants or, um, uh, investment pro formas were built upon those decisions that we made, but we made them knowing, um, we wanted to be different. Yeah. We wanted to be ahead of the curve. So, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then, we also knew that we needed to invest in our managers and our chefs in a different way as well. Okay. And our presence is significant in the restaurants. People have great access to us, but we also kind of looked at it and said, what kind of sig- leadership training are they getting really? Really? And uh, we, we can be accessible. So we actually, we sought out a company c- called One Degree that is a uh, leadership training company. And we, in a time where, you know, money couldn't have been tighter, um, we thought it was a really smart move to invest in them. And we developed a leadership training um, program for all of our chefs and managers that they attend each month. And it's so exhilarating, quite frankly, to come to these meetings because everybody's there, all of our managers and all of our chefs from all of our restaurants in one room and going through a lot of skill training, everything from conflict resolution to how to run a pre-shift and how to read people, how to uh, dial your communication for certain people's style of learning. We've delved into many things, and the goal was simple. A, it's going to make our organization better. B, if someone leaves our company for whatever reason, to go to their own business, uh, whatever, our goal was that we wanted them to look back over their time with us and say, Hey, I benefited from working with Define hospitality. I'm glad I work with those guys. I've noticed too, that, um, when, when you take the time to invest in your people, develop these skills in, inject culture of values into them, when it is time for them to go on and do their own thing, you're more than likely to be a part of that with them. You know, why go do your own thing when you could do something with us? Like, you know, is that, is that something that you've done or is there, like how did so you talked about leadership you, we got here by talking about how you're investing your leadership and your management one of the things you're doing is the training and the education they're getting but it, we also talked about insurance and all this other stuff and benefits and things like this um are you are you doing profit sharing anything along those lines we haven't got to profit sharing i mean we have uh you know we have debt yeah and uh it's kind of hard to dial in profit sharing when you know we're we're paying down debt and investors and so uh but we, I think that we're we feel really good about where we are on a, on all compensation levels. Got it. Feel really good. Got it. So just paying your people a livable wage. Yeah, and I think uh, we were one of the first restaurants, if not the first, in Philadelphia to add a um, kitchen service charge to every check. And so the idea there was is we wanted the back of the house. To, we wanted to try to even out the the, the long t- standing disparity. And also incentivize everyone that works in kitchens to, uh, if the restaurant's busier, they make more. And so by instituting the service charge, 3% on every check, uh, if you work a Saturday night, you're going to make more money than you do if you work a Monday night. Right. And, uh, and it made a di- big difference in um, a lot of people's lives. And, you know, we've had some cust- a handful of customers have pushed back on it. 
but we stood by it because um, it was needed. You know what? You're, you're, you're bringing up something right now. I'm going to echo the mission statement to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. But full heartedly, I believe my mission with this podcast is to change the world because I believe that if you change the restaurant industry, the restaurant industry changes the world. And this is a perfect example of that. You know, like we need to be better about educating the consumer mm. and asking from the consumer what we need to run a normal business. Our business model is effed up man and we and it's effed up because of us we effed it up because we just took it all the time like we we always paid it forward to the consumer we always made the that's what we do in hospitality we're generous you know we're always the last to benefit and whatever's left over is what we take and that fundamental mindset like you got to charge the consumer what it costs to run the business it's a transaction what does it take charge the consumer. And we're afraid to charge the consumer. What's going through your mind? That is, uh, wow. That is um, exactly the conversations we've had. Uh, and, you know, I, I've, I have this, you know, 30-some year history, and it's amazing to me that um, if you look at what you said is so right on, we're still charging and paying people the same way we were 25 years ago. Yeah. And the customer will still complain about it. So you have two choices, either go do something else or reinvent it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, our new motto, our, our new thought about pricing, we're not like willy nilly or arrogant about it. We have to deliver a great product. So this, this, this really energizes us to be great and run a, and a great restaurants. And our, our customers, God bless them, have been responding to what we've been putting out there. At the same time, we have to charge what it takes mm-hmm. to, fulfill the needs of the investors or there's no company uh, to pay staff in a way that is meaningful so they can achieve goals in their lives. Uh, and then of course, be able to feed our own families and, and be paid for our efforts. I mean, we're opening a restaurant right now and I, you know, I, I'll, I'll say to people, how many hours do you think I work on a restaurant before it opens? Um, there's, we don't get paid for that. And, uh, and when we hire chefs and managers and start opening that restaurant, that is part of our debt. So the onus on a restaurant to perform when it opens is, is incredibly intense. Um, and I think that would, you know, I said, people's the priority with yeah, us. We literally what I was just thinking. And so we're very, very willing to balance, uh, those relationships now where they were imbalanced. The customer's always right. Uh, you know, they're always negotiating this or negotiating that. Um, we are going to love our customer. We're going to provide a great experience for them. We're going to treat them with respect, but we're going to charge them what we need to fulfill all those other obligations for all the people. And we're also doing work in, a, in communities where we're making a difference by taking rundown warehouses. And when you see our next project, you'll see again that we're loving something back to life yeah. that is historical that no one wanted to touch with a 10 foot pole and uh, we need to charge what it's worth Yeah, or, or you know what, we can all be proud of it, but it's no good if it's out of business. And this is what I believe. And when I say like the restaurant industry has the power to change the world because most of the privileged people have the ability to spend money on these. It's not just food, it's service, it's experience. We're providing so much more than a meal. And I think the other variable that's worth taking into consideration is we pay approximately 10% 
less now than we did like a hundred years ago on food. People spend less money on food. Like it's like 9% now of a total income goes towards food where it used to be like over 20%. So I think there needs to be a shift in values in society where we take the money from the privilege and we, we, it's a trickle down, you know, and that money goes back into communities and providing opportunities for people. It's a great vehicle for change. Yeah. And think about, there's another thing to think about. And I always, you know, I go, used to say this, even the Steven Starr, when he's getting criticism, you were saying it seems like, you know, the busier he got and the wealthier he got, the more criticism he took. Well, look at how many artisans and artists and people he put to work. We're doing the same thing. There's woodworkers and steelworkers and artists and they're they're putting in, you know, our our horticologists are putting in a new uh, flower arrangements right next door to at Soraya in our garden. They're beautiful. So all these people that have these professions that are their passion, we're employing also and all of that. But ultimately there's only one person that pays and that's the customer. And we've got to charge them for all that. Exactly. And, uh, and I, you know, that's what makes, makes me extraordinarily proud to be in the restaurant industry because it touches so many of the trades. Yes. Uh, so many of the artisans, so many of the farmers, it's the list is endless. There's so, and we want to start profiling more of those people on the road because there is so much adjacent industry, like aside the restaurant industry, like it's not just food and beverage. It's designers where your, your designer was in here. You know, it's all these talented people that spin off opportunity for so many different verticals. Um, we've got to wrap it up because I want to respect your time. We're not going to do a speed round. I'll let Greg do the speed round for you. Um, I do want to go on record and saying I have nothing wrong with Steven star. When I, when I said the statement, the days of the Steven stars are over, meaning I don't think you can do it alone anymore. I don't think there can be just one owner and to, and I don't think you can achieve the same level of success that Steven, Steven has achieved by yourself in today's market. Cause I think the only way to get the talent is to offer equity. Yeah. I, I believe that statement. Well, um, you know, I, I didn't take it negatively. Your comment okay, about Steven, cool. I, I actually took it. I think he would take it as a compliment yeah. because uh, um, that's how I took it. Yeah, yeah I yeah, thought I good. thought it was. Right. I thought it was just more of a sign. Just of, making sure. <laughs> no, I think it was more of a, a commentary on how you're seeing the industry yeah. and how intense it is and and the support that's needed. Right. You know, even you know, you look at it. Why am I here with Define Hospitality on scale? There's three operators here now, but. Um, make no mistake that that's what's making it tick right um this is where we have to wrap it up i want to respect your time before i do say goodbye officially i ask all my guests before we say goodbye who do you respect and admire i'm really trying to take restaurant unstoppable into a journalistic area where i'm letting the industry decide who we're making an example of paying attention to what you're saying picking up the breadcrumbs as they're being dropped so who do you think we should make an example of on the show well, I, that's a that, that's it's tough for me to say. Uh, I'll take multiple. I'm going to take two. I'm going to give you two people that are top of mind with me right now in the industry. Um, one is an and, Amanda Shulman over at uh, her place, Supper Club. Uh, I think what she's doing is so gutsy and so um, just you know bravado, but in a way that is all about the team. And it's called her place, and it's a really interesting one. Her and I have talked about it. But uh, she's uh, she's just a little badass. She works her butt off. She cares about her people. She cares about the industry. She cares. She just cares. Is it a membership model of Supper Club? No, it's no. not. It's uh, and she's an, she's a James Beard nominee. Um, and also, she has a real vision that you know she she wants her restaurant to be in Center City because she wants to help Center City come back. My partner, Chef Nook, our partner at Kalia, is just another amazing woman. If you 
you know, follow her, this, her story from growing up in Thailand to where she is now. Um, it's just another person that really resonates with me because she brings it every night. Uh, she's just wonderful, hardworking. She, um, is so proud of her, her Thai culture and, and through her food and honoring her family and her mother, uh, through her work, but also a pillar in the community, do anything for anybody at any time. It's just so proud to have her as a partner and for us, you know, for the restaurant to be absolutely getting the acclaim that it is, is, uh, through a lot of, a lot of hard work. So these are two people that are kind of on, that are inspiring me right now. Beautiful. And that's chef Amanda Schulman and chef Nook. Yeah. Look out ladies. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And, um, how do we connect? If we were inspired by today's story and maybe we want to come join your team, maybe we want to be a part of an organization that has the integrity, the amount of integrity that you guys are putting into defined hospitality. How do we connect? Text me at two one five six eight zero thirteen forty five. Awesome. Literally, it's the quickest way. Al, this has been a lot of fun, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your perspectives. Uh, there is no questioning; you are unstoppable. All righty, I appreciate the time. I'm very humbled to uh, be here, and shout out to Eli for even recommending me um, because he is another person that is just makes our industry unstoppable. Yeah. What he's doing to lift up Philadelphia sharing knowledge is really great. Um, tip to the hat. Eli, uh, we'll wrap it there, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Al Lucas, man, a master of team building and some amazing lessons here around team building, listening and just recognizing your people, creating opportunity for your people. Awesome stuff. I really enjoyed today's conversation uh, and just thank you very much to Eli Culp for uh, introducing me to the defined hospitality group. Uh, and, uh, man, so much happening here at Restaurant Unstoppable, uh, really trying to commit to this 100% on-site interviews, in-person interviews, and really trying to be more intentional about following the leads, listening to what my guests are saying, the, the clues, the breadcrumbs they're leaving behind, and, and following those clues, the, the tools, the services, the individuals are recommending. And uh, to be completely honest, it's it's a lot more difficult, but... It's the. I feel like it's the right thing to do. The 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 object is the way, and uh, we are looking to expand and grow. Right now, we're working with Sam Hall, and he's doing an amazing job with the videography uh, and the editing. But I, I going into the fourth quarter of this year, I'm going to be looking to kind of take on a lot more of that responsibility on my own, and maybe trying to find somebody uh, who's just getting started in the world of videography and somebody who wants to be able to travel more open-ended. So uh, that's one of the things right now I'm looking for is somebody that that can do that more open-ended traveling so we can follow up on the clues and and stay on the road a little bit longer. Uh, And if that's something that that appeals to you, if you're somebody who's interested in the world of videography, social media, editing, and storytelling, and you're passionate about the restaurant industry, please email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. I'm open to new people coming in and, and helping us with this mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So that is one way you can support this mission is, is by actually joining the team. And we're going to be putting this feeler out uh, often over the next 
uh, six months to, to find the right person. So do not be shy. Reach out to me if you're interested in, in this project we have going on. Other ways you can support the show, you can support our sponsors, use our affiliate links, share this podcast with anybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. Uh, you can come hang out on Restaurant Stoppable Network. We're going to be popping that off again real soon. And uh, before I say goodbye, special thanks to the people who make this possible. Jared Parisi and Sam Hall can't do it without you guys. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.